You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, recording live from the Diamantina Shire. Clancy Overall and Wendell Hussey here today, and today we've decided to to look back in time to a time most of us would forget, particularly Victorians would like to forget. Actually, it didn't really affect Queenslanders that much. We had the corrugated iron curtain that was Anastasia's closed borders. And the virus we're going to talk about, it hated the heat, so I never really... It hated the heat. That that was one theory. One theory. Your grandfather's theory was the virus hated the heat, (laughs) so we were all right. But whether or not you were in lockdown or whether you were working in medicine or you were a frontline worker, the fact of the matter was you had to learn a lot of things uh, throughout COVID, particularly things you had no business knowing, like the name of the Tasmanian Premier. But on top of that, we also had to kind of change the way we report. And uh, there's just so much, the more you think about this, there's so much change overnight, and some of it still lingers around today. Just 24-hour news cycles shrinking to 12-hour news cycles to 10-minute news cycles. All these new words we learnt, mutant strain, contact traces, as I said, they're all very good band names, Avalon Cluster, Ruby Princess, all Mm. these things were happening, and everyone effectively were building a plane while we were flying it. Today's guests have compiled and captured that moment in time in Australian media in their new book, which uh, publishes essays from journalists right across the country uh, that explains what happened, how things changed. Thank you for joining us. Tracy Kirkland Gavin Fang. Great to be here. Thank you. And we'll, we'll see today whether there has been enough water under the bridge to talk about this, whether we hit any raw notes or draw up any memories from a tough time. Mm. Um, I learned how to make ragu. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what was the thinking to create this book, Panamedia? Well, to be honest, we were talking a lot about the ethical issues that we were having to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So Gavin and I both work at the ABC and we just were, this is probably in the third year of the pandemic, right? And we were having conversation about these really big ethical decisions we were ha- having to make as editorial leaders. Yeah. And it wasn't that we hadn't made them before, but I think they felt really profound. Yeah. And there were so many people relying on us to tell them about COVID. We felt the weight of the responsibility in deciding, you know, what we tell people, yeah. what we show people, what we prioritise. And so when we were talking about all these kind of decisions, we thought there's a story here. Yeah. Um, and then as we talked more, we thought, wow, journalists right across the country, we were in the front line. Yeah. And there's so many stories to tell from across Australia. And I think um, there are turning points in history, right? So there is, we all remember pre-COVID and then we remember post-COVID, but we also thought it would be worth tracking, well, what actually happened during COVID, which changed the way we do our jobs and changed the way we as storytellers are telling stories to Australians. And so we wanted to go back and really capture that and talk to the people and hear from the people that were doing the stories and setting uh, the media agenda and the way that the public really then understood COVID. Just on a personal level, was there a moment for both of you where it, the world changed? I know there was, we've spoken about the moments for us. Mine was being in another city and then going on a Bucks party for 48 hours and getting to the airport and realising the world looked very, very different. Um, Tomorrow when the war began. Hours. And yeah. the Bucks party mm. did make it particularly scary, um, <laughs> flying in on a Sunday night. But was there a moment for you, Tracy, where you just thought, wow, this is it, it's all changing? 
Wow. Look, for us, it almost changed overnight. So one day we were all in the newsroom, all together, having our normal kind of robust editorial meetings. Literally the next day, half of the office had been sent home. Our editorial meetings were on Zoom and we called Gavin the tech guy because we'd like, oh, oh, we don't know what's going on. Can you kind of press this? But, you know, and so we had to learn that overnight and then learn how to work with half of your workforce at home. Um, And it was literally overnight. We weren't allowed to have people in the studio anymore from one day we could, the next day we couldn't. So it was an overnight thing. But I think for me, it was, you know, and then your kids obviously have can't go to school and, you know, all that stuff. But walking around around the ABC and having the streets completely deserted was incredible. And I will say some of the people talk in the essay about that moment. It is a really interesting thing to think about because COVID came on us kind of slowly. You know, as journalists, we were hearing about it Mm. overseas and in China and then you know, we were looking from afar, thinking, oh, we're isolated, we're okay. And then all of a sudden it was here. Well, it kind of came slowly, but yeah. then everyone has got this one point. But it's a little bit different to kind of when did, where were you when Princess Diana died or mm. where were you when 9-11? Yeah. A little bit different. It kind of, yeah, evolved. I don't know, for you, what do you Oh, think? for me, so I've got um, a lot of our international journos report to me. So early on it was when, um, I don't know if you remember, but when the virus really kind of hit New York City. And so there were... The rolling morgues. Yeah, and they were literally, exactly, they were putting out sea containers. There were bodies in sea containers. I think they made um, like a field hospital in Central Park. So we we have a journalist, uh, a couple of journos based in Washington, and one of our journos, David Lipson, wanted to do a trip up to New York. And so normally that's a pretty standard trip, right? Washington to New York. It's not a very hazardous or risky assignment. An Australian could drive it easy. Correct. He was going to drive up. But we ended up in a conversation about how safe is it for you to go into New York? And it was the classic kind of post-apocalyptic thinking. So we were thinking, does he have to drive through New York City with the windows up in his car? Um, Does he have to wear a full hazmat suit? Mm. Is he allowed to just to get out of the car to walk around. People you know, going to be banging on the windows yeah, as he goes can he, Exactly. You know, can he just open the window and like and make the story? Or we we're also talking about, do we have to put him in a, like a town outside New York so we can just go in for a few hours? Yeah. How long is he allowed to be exposed for? Because we didn't know any of the answers to these questions, right, at this point. So that was the turning point for me because we ended up saying, no, you couldn't go because we just didn't know yeah. literally whether or not we were going Just to expose him to yeah. death, yeah, to, yeah. to the virus. So that, for me, was the big turning point. And I think that was that was probably in the first year, Quite in the first on. couple of months. So tell us, what is the thinking? What is the general consensus among the journalists? Did they all feel like they got turned throughout this whole thing, right? There's, that's a start. We start talking about precautions, and then everyone starts getting restless and a lot of idle hands and a lot of idle minds, and we start creating answers to what's happening, and then you all of a sudden become the enemy of the state. Was that the feeling amongst all the journalists that they at some point were behind this or definitely championing this? <laughs> it followed a bit of a trajectory, and it depends on which media organisation you were listening to, yeah. uh, which social media platform you were yeah. reading. Yeah. Journalists, look, it was weird because people were all of a sudden accusing you of being you know, in cahoots with the government <laughs> and that you were actually part of this. And I would say to my friends, you know, this is actually me who's making these decisions. So yeah. these accusations you're making against the media, yeah. you're actually 
like you know me yeah. you know it was almost it was unbelievable yeah. actually that they were being convinced that together the media and the government were yeah. you know doing this to the Australian the ABC people. was working closely with yeah. Scott Morrison to, <laughs> That's to right. lock you up <laughs> <laughs> to destroy and, the economy for <laughs> what? absolutely yeah, yeah. It, it was it was very strange mm. and so from inside all we were trying to do was get you the latest information as quickly as we could do it and as accurately as we could do it. And in a sense, that's all we could do. And that was kind of funny too, because what happened was you know, eventually so, some of the health advice started to be found to be wrong oh, and yeah, some of I the remember, health experts started to I remember fight. The, yeah, the, um, the goalpost changed a little bit. You know, I remember the, the big one was all of a sudden young people can't get AstraZeneca. Yeah. And that was, I think that was actually a critical kind of chink in the armour for for yeah. the government health messaging. That's the change moment for me when you yeah. talk about where do we go from, hey, we're all in this together providing yeah. information to, hey, you guys are all providing misinformation, you know, the, or lots of the public starting to think that there was this conspiracy going on, to use that kind of terrible term. But it was really around AstraZeneca because yeah. one day it was like, hey, everybody, you got to go out and get this thing. And then it's like, well, hang on a minute. This is going to kill you with a yeah. blood clot. And for us, like I can remember the conversations we had in our newsroom, which was this is a tiny percentage chance of, of this occurring, yeah. right? So we want to report that because yeah. it's happening. But meantime, we know that people will start to hear this and think, oh, I don't want to yeah. have this vaccine now. So that's that was a real switch when the misinformation or the idea about the misinformation from the media kicked in. And from then on in, that issue and the perspective of anti-vaxxers grew to yeah. the point when, I don't know if you remember, but the protests in Melbourne where yeah. journos were getting spat on and You're punched and, and, you know, in a, and chased around. So that was, that was a pretty significant moment. Yeah. We do talk to, or in the, in the book, um, Rachel Baxendale, who was the Australian's Victorian political editor. So she went to every Dan Andrews press conference. So she writes about that. And she's really interesting because she talks about the Purple Room of Doom. That's Dan Andrews's room where they had the presses. And just about the environment in there and about the information war that went on a little bit there. And that's my term, not, not hers. But of course... The Victorian government were trying to get across their perspective and their point of view, and she's asking questions as a journo, and she got significant backlash against yeah. her on social media, death threats, some yeah. awful things. So she talks a bit about how she copped that and yeah. how she kind of dealt with that and her idea about that she's in a privileged position to get to ask questions, but yeah. that was that was a pretty full-on backlash. Yeah, yeah, it was... Like something we'll never see before because everyone was at home. Like everyone was stuck at home. Like you can talk about politicised environments or pressure cooker environments, but very rarely are everyone, you know, sitting around looking for something to tee off on. Did you see any, and we probably shouldn't name names because a lot of people have made names for themselves through the pandemic, but do you see any profiles emerge? I saw the contrarian was a very easy thing to do. I can't remember his name. He was an economist from a certain newspaper. All of a sudden just said, I don't believe in lockdowns. Everyone's like, well, that's great for an economist to say that, mate. <laughs> um, but how do you deal with the contrarian, I guess, profile-boosting actions of some journalists is actually undermining the entire messaging of the whole the whole pull-together thing? Did you think some people actually believed this or do you think that, that sometimes it was for 
I mean, that's a hard question <laughs> to answer. answer. Right? <laughs> well, we read the we read some of the papers sometimes and wonder what they believe. So I don't mm. think that changed. Yeah. Look, you need to have people who have a good sense of look. Is this really true? Yeah. You know, you do mm. need people to ask. Because it's part of our role as journalists to challenge what the government says, yeah. to challenge what the health experts say. I mean, up until then, we had pretty much accepted what came out of some of our major institutions would be right. Yeah. And here we were faced with a, a situation where sometimes it wasn't right because we were all learning on the go. Yeah. This was a new disease. It was moving in new ways, but also it was moving in predictable ways. Yeah. So you had health es- experts actually kind of disagreeing with each other as well. So because of there was that undercurrent of we don't always, we can't tell you exactly what the truth is, but we could tell you the latest yeah. information. Yeah, look, it gave room for people to disagree, people to make things up, people to push political agendas, and we had to just be tackling that all the time. Were there a lot of conversations about balancing what you're talking about there, holding the government to account, holding these major parties and big bodies to account with getting information out and not scaring people because it's particularly special and different time that we haven't seen before. What were the conversations like about, well, we need to get all this information out as quickly as possible, but we need to try not to scare people, but we also need to hold these powers to account and ask the tough questions that they don't want to answer. But sometimes, sometimes they don't want to answer. Yeah, there were. And I think that the other thing to go on top of that is just the speed that this was moving. So, you know, uh, every day we were getting new bits of information. Sometimes pieces of information were changing in the same day. Yeah. So the, the, the problem for us as journalists and for, and for the media was how do we even stay up to date with what's right right now, let alone or what's going to be right in half an hour, let alone, you know, what's going to be right tomorrow? The other thing about this story, right, is we were all living it. So a lot of stories you're not living, you kind of are reporting on, but we all had personal experience of this thing. So some of us were in lockdowns and whatever, you know, all of our Melbourne colleagues were essentially living through the Victorian situation. So we fully felt the weight of how do we get this right How do we provide the information that people want? And the information, the thirst for information was just immense, right? You spoke before, Clancy, about how everyone's sitting at home in their pyjamas essentially watching, you know, every politician's press conference every day. And we would see our audience numbers just spike on yeah. these things, right? Yeah. And, and stay with us and too. And stay with it, For the yeah, whole yeah. hour, hour yeah. and a so, half. So, you know, and everyone's like out there on their socials tweeting, you know, Dan Andrews is up in five minutes kind of thing. Like yeah. who would have thought that these people would become kind of rock stars? Yeah. But they all had a view on what the information was as well. So everybody, like in a sense there was kind of this egalitarian system of of information that was out there. We were all getting it at the same time. So for us as journos, our job in that situation is provide the information back to the public in the kind of tightest and most easiest way to understand. So Mm -hmm. what is the government saying about what... how your life's being affected by them, but also, yeah, to question what they are telling us, question the science, but follow, and this is going to be really boring, but follow the weight, what we call the weight of evidence. What is the actual weight of evidence out there, which prevents us from going all the way out onto the crazy fringe, but sticking in the middle where, you know, we think where the experts are, where you actually think the weight of evidence kind of is. Mm. And I think that, I mean, it was a daily discussion and and sometimes an hourly discussion about how we marry those two things. And one of the writers in this book actually talks really amazingly 
about being a journalist, you're, you're so used to finding the truth quite quickly. Mm. So if there's an, a natural disaster like an earthquake or whatever, a whole lot of misinformation comes out at the start. But if, pretty quickly you can sift through yeah. it. And by day two, you've got a really good picture of yeah. what went on. With COVID, it was just changing so quickly that what you wrote by the next day had actually been shown to be incorrect. Yeah. And as journos, that's quite hard because we're <laughs> trying imagine, to be... I can't imagine yeah. how humiliating that is. Like... In the sense or that, demoralizing, uh, demoralizing, not yeah. humiliating, but yeah, it's like just no one likes doing a bunch of work that was for nothing anyway, in any regard. You know what I mean? No one likes to build a house that falls over. Like spend a day on something, the next day you go, well, the thing that we were all working on yesterday has changed. Oh, and if truth is your bar, yeah. you know, and you feel like you're failing your audience, yeah. that's hard. And it, what it meant is a lot of journalists ended up getting burnt out yep. and actually f- losing their sense of purpose and actually having to leave the industry because yep. they just couldn't cope. And I think there are a lot of other issues. And what we've learned from COVID is there are other issues which have that long tail yep. as well. The war in Ukraine, climate change, yep. where things actually the science changes and you, you've got this really long story and how you tell it and how you tell it in a way that's useful for the audience and amplifies the things that are important and, yep. and prioritises the, the most important information. I was just going to say, as well, you can see. I think across the the COVID years, the um, the atmosphere in some of those press conferences. Like, yeah. imagine basically the journo's and the politicians were pressed up against each other day in day out about yeah. the same topic for two and a half years or whatever it was. Some of the atmosphere got a little bit kind of grumpy. You know, we're asking the same questions, we're getting the same answers, we're talking about the same things. Yesterday it was something different, you know, in terms of the information. So I think that was a little bit reflected in the way that dynamic played out a bit as well. I felt like there was the politician and the answers evolved. I'd never heard prior to the pandemic, what I will say is, (laughs) like I'd never heard that offered as an answer and and it became an acceptable one. Do you think that this followed into the election campaign? You know, all this Albanese at the start when he fumbled on the rates and there was a back and forth between the journos and the politicians, um, you know, Adam Bant. I mean, Morrison was getting caught out all the time. But do you think that had followed on from the, you know, I'm thinking of a number between one and a thousand. What is it, Mr. Albanese? Like, do you think that had followed on from the pandemic coverage? Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I suppose... um the more you take down the barriers between the politicians and the people asking the questions or that kind of idea that they're kind of separate and have more information than we do, you start you you don't lose respect because I think the respect still has to be there, but you, you lose a little bit of that kind of distance. So you are kind yeah. of a bit more, you can be a bit more uh, familiar with the way that you're asking questions. Yeah. I think as well, potentially, we had a couple of years of that really kind of back and forth about, you know, getting into the information. There were a few kind of gotcha questions that emerged out of that, and some of those things might have played through into that election dynamic. But the other side of that is that the politicians also understood that as well, and they knew that they could recover from that, and they knew that the audience also uh, had seen a lot of journalists and press conferences in action over yeah. the past couple of years, and that didn't necessarily do great things for what people think about us and our career, yeah. our, our our profession, and the way that we ask questions and the way yeah. we engage on stories. I so, guess that would, and Albanese is a perfect example of someone who probably wasn't match fit going into an election because he hadn't been in government during the pandemic. And so this whole new environment that has changed that you write about, or you've compiled all these different stories of it changing. Uh, he wasn't ready for it. And, I mean, we, we, we say before he lost probably two or three seats that day, you know, in, in, in the overall election result. That was a great fumble. But he, he wasn't match fit. He didn't have the Dan Andrews showing up every single day for 300 days 
But it probably worked in his favour, though, that he wasn't there during COVID. It was a fresh start when what Australia needed kind of something fresh. That's happened right around the world, hasn't it? Yeah, and I think think the other thing that's changed about the press conference is during COVID, you really saw everything. Like, we mic'd up the journos. You saw the whole (laughs) lot. And you sat there. I mean, who now is going to sit through an Albo presser for for an hour and a half? No one. And certainly not on a daily basis. Like it, it It was a weird one where what you're watching on the news will affect your day. Like, you know what I mean? Today, your life, you your children. <laughs> your, that's, yeah. the, that's the thing about this story. Yeah. Everybody was interested because they were affected, right? Yeah. It, basically, it had something to do with you. Yeah. In hindsight, though, do you think, like, have there been conversations that you've been a part of about potentially changing how much information gets covered and how quickly things get covered moving forward? Because at the time, yeah, you go from one eleven o'clock press conference, you go, we've got 732 cases here. You're off to the 11.30 up in Queensland. There's 24 cases here and a cluster there. And that was happening every single day. And obviously, lockdowns are up. Lockdowns were coming in, lifted, etc. But looking back in hindsight, are there have there been some thoughts that maybe there was too much information? There was too much focus on all these little things that people got caught up in and got too invested in to their own detriment and maybe to the media's own detriment as well? Well, what I would say is that what we've thought about is try and learn from that. I think if we look back on that time, did was there too much information? I don't know because the audience interest was there. Yeah. Mm. People wanted us, yeah. certainly because I work for um, News Channel, which is a continuous news platform. We played all of the yeah. press conferences in full yeah. for and almost all of watching, it. Yeah. The audience was there for it. They really, And <laughs> yeah. we weren't the only channel playing it either. Yeah. So... There were millions of people who wanted to see that at that time and that information that day could have been different to the day before and people needed it. But I think what we've learned from it is that and going forward is that it was all happening so fast. And unfortunately, we got caught up as journalists in doing everything so fast and across every platform and getting it out as quickly as possible and then analysing. And so I think what we've learned is that in a lot of cases, we actually need to slow down what we do. We don't have to give you something every 15 minutes. We can give you the latest information, take some time to read, analyse it before we come back to you with an update. So there's definitely lessons out of COVID that we can take forward that are going to make us better. I think our toolkit is bigger because obviously now we can Skype and Zoom and all these things and the audience is quite happy. So there's, there is lessons we can learn, but I think it's more about slowing down what we do as news organisations, trying to explain the issues properly. Because mm. I think trust is a really, we've come out of this as one of the professions least trusted. And I think yeah. in your essay, you talk about Woolies and Coles are now Australia's most trusted. Oh, kind of no. <laughs> they were for a while, yeah. Yeah, organisation. where you can get your toilet paper. Yeah, um, yeah. My reflection would be similar to Tracy's. I think that this was such a fast moving thing. But when you look back and you think, well, what would I do differently now? We potentially could have slowed down a bit from yeah. time to time because that information was just this wall or this yeah. this becomes this, you know, huge noise that you have to, as an audience, kind of take in. How do you make sense of it all? So for us, I think along the way, providing that information, but also providing people with a bit more of the context and a bit more of the, how do I make sense of that? Like, how does that sit within the five other things I've just heard within, you know, the last two days about this? Trying to help people understand what's important and what's kind of less important information would be, I think, a way we would potentially tackle something like this again. I mean, what's happened off the back of COVID, potentially as a reaction from the public to that, 
phenomena is that news avoidance, right? It's yeah. just like yeah. through the roof. You know, people went from like, give it to me, the whole yeah. thing, to like, I don't want to hear any more things. Please mm. just te- yeah. don't tell me anything else unless it's something nice and fun, right? Yeah. And we all feel that too. Like, you know, that's something that we're all grappling with. So tell me, um, we wrap up here, who are some of the journalists you have spoken to or, and, and have um, contributed to this? So they've all written their own essays. Yeah, yeah. So from their own personal experience, we've got um, Michelle Grattan, we've got David Spears, uh, Casey Briggs, Lisa Miller, um, Norman Swan. We've got the heads of SBS, NITV, right. um, Tori Maguire from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I mean, we, we span, uh, we've got people from the New York Times, Al Jazeera. Right. We span almost all of the news organisations in Australia and we across newspapers, radio, television, all the commercials as well as the um, public broadcasters. So we've got the really wide range of experience. But um, at the start, Gavin and I really sat down and thought about the narrative of this book. We didn't want you just to kind of have a repeat. Yeah. Everyone's kind of telling you the same thing. So we kind of shared out different topics and, the uh, you know, and, and so it's actually really varied what they talk about as well. And I think one of the things people don't realise is that there was a lot of trauma yeah. within journalist ranks um, dealing with this on a you know every day for two and a half years we just talked about nothing else as well as living it and so we talk a little bit about that trauma as well and going forward as well as all you know the great resignation and and, yeah you just mentioned there Al Jazeera and the New York Times did you notice some different themes in international journalists um, essays what they were saying or was it quite similar to what the Australian journalists were saying um, so Damien Cave from the New York Times wrote for the book and he spent a fair bit of time in Australia as well. Uh, I think he, he his reflection was he was quite shocked at the different ways that Australia, the Australian media and Australians responded to COVID and were quite happy to, you know, be told to, you know, not move 5Ks from their home and not go out and, you know, not speak to anybody and stay at home all the time as compared to the way Americans responded. <laughs> I think that was his kind it of comes reflection. comes down to uh, how these two countries were founded. Correct, <laughs> yeah. And then um, we spoke to Drew Ambrose, who uh, used to be at the ABCs but has been at Al Jazeera for probably 15 years. And his essay was really looking at how some governments in parts of the world used COVID to kind of crack down on freedoms as well. So, and to use it as a kind of authoritarian tool and to restrict information on things that weren't about the way that they wanted either COVID or anything else to be interpreted. Stan Grant actually wrote a really amazing essay about China as well. And he talks about the virus, talks about COVID, and I can't you know, um, do justice to the way Stan writes or thinks, but talks about how the Chinese government kind of human rights abuses, essentially. He compares the way that China treats um, people that are opposed to it like a virus as well and the way they try to control and repress and use some of the same tactics, essentially, that were used to control a medical virus. Lock them up, you know. Exactly, yeah. 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 Weld the doors shut. I'm looking forward to going top to bottom on this. And like we said at the start, this is, has been like kind of a long enough time to kind of look back at all of this and and remind ourselves it happened. That's another thing. I mean, you guys don't need to be reminded. As you said, you talked about nothing else for three days, three years. Um, but thank you for sticking with it. And thank you for keeping us informed and now doubling down and doing this. And I hope you can get a break soon. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having so us. So do we. <laughs>